Good morning, Calvary. Our passage this morning is found in Luke 8, verses 26 through 39. So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes, across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. Then he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. This spirit had often taken control of the man. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness, completely under the demon's power. Jesus demanded, what is your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby, and the demons begged him to let them enter into the pigs. So Jesus gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone, for a great wave of fear slept, swept over them. So Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him home saying, no, go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. So he went all through the town proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him. Pretty crazy passage that Lacey Ann just read, and we're going to get into it in a moment. This is the final installment of our series in Luke chapter 7 and 8 called Faith Like This, and it's been a wonderful series. I have loved Luke 7 and 8, and we're not going to finish 8 today. We're just going to end where Lacey Ann ended here, and then we're going to pick up the rest of Luke 8 in the new year, in 2024, which is crazy to think about that that's right around the corner. Um, but next week, as I mentioned, uh, with Eric and I is Reach Sunday. So we'll have Tom and Gail Shook sharing with us about some of the things that God's doing, which is going to be awesome. And then the following week, as you heard, it's our Thanksgiving one service at 10 a.m. And then we move into Advent, Christmas. Anybody have their Christmas lights up yet? I live on the same street as John Sherman, and I'm going to call him out. John Sherman put his lights up already. It's incredible. 
well done, John, <laughs> to that, making the rest of us look bad. Uh, but uh, it's Christmas, our Advent season, and then we'll go into the new year, and then we'll pick back up in the Gospel of Luke. And so today, final installment of this Faith Like Us, uh, Faith Like This, uh, looking at the incredible faith of people who responded to Jesus. Today's story, though, is not necessarily the, the person's faith, but it's really what Jesus does for them and then what happens in that transformation. I've titled this sermon, Demons, Pigs, and a Boat. If you came across this on Amazon or Netflix, this title of a movie, would you watch it? <laughs> it's a pretty gnarly story. Eric was trying to get me to say all week to title the sermon, Demon Piggies. And <laughs> I resisted uh, doing that. But you get the gist of this. Talking about demons, talking about pigs, talking about a boat. If anyone at work tomorrow asks you, hey, what'd you do at church yesterday? Talked about demons, pigs, and a boat. So uh, that should be a good discussion starter for you uh, in the morning. Before we even dive verse by verse into this passage, though, I want to pull us out of Luke and look at chapter 4 of Acts. This is also written by Luke. This is the second volume of Dr. Luke. And in Acts chapter 4, he uh, documents Peter and John talking about Jesus. This is post-resurrection, post-ascension of Jesus. And Peter and John are speaking with such authority and with such passion about who Jesus is and what he's done. The religious leaders hear that Peter and John have gathered this crowd, and so they go and observe, and this is what they come back and they say, what Luke records. It says, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. And then I've highlighted this last sentence. I want you to see it. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Isn't that a powerful statement, church? They were just ordinary men, no special training necessarily, but they are recognized as being with Jesus. Don't you want that? Don't you want people to look at your life and recognize that you have been with Jesus? You may be ordinary, you may be unschooled, but you have spent time with Jesus Christ, and it reflects on your life. That's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for us as a church, that people would see that we have been with Jesus. And no doubt, as Peter and John are, are preaching here in Acts 4, their boldness and their courage is fueled by the Holy Spirit, which came on them in Acts 2, but it's probably also fueled by their experiences of life with Jesus, including this crazy story of demons, pigs, and a boat from Luke chapter 8. And so, like it encouraged their faith, I, I hope that it encourages our faith here today. It's an incredible story. It's found here in Luke 8. It's also found in two of the other Gospels, in Matthew chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 5 as well. And it starts off in this, Luke 8, 26. Look in your Bible there again. It says that they arrived in the region of Gethsemane. 
across the, the Sea of Galilee, the lake is often called as well. So reminder from last week is that the disciples went with Jesus. Jesus said, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side of the Galilee. And the disciples would know what he meant by that. They would go from the non-Jewish side to the Gentile side, the Greco-Roman dominated side. They get in that boat. They're probably already a little bit nervous about what this adventure, this trip will hold. And then as we read last week, the storm comes upon the sea. And the disciples legitimately think they're going to drown, that their boat's going to sink and they're going to die. And then we see Jesus with the authority of God because he is God, calming the storm. We see Jesus' authority and power over nature, over the wind and the waves. It's awesome. And the disciples proclaim that question, who is this man? Who is this guy that we're following in this boat that he can do something with such power and such authority? And then we pick up here in verse 26. It says, they arrive on the shore of the other side. No doubt the disciples in this moment, even though they were going to a mysterious Gentile land, no doubt when that boat kind of hit the ground and they could feel the sand under the boat, they probably let out this big sigh of relief, right? Like, oh, that was crazy. We just survived the storm. Jesus just performed a miracle. Who, who exactly is he? What are, who are we? They were both, as Eric even mentioned today, both fearful and in awe of who this man was that they were in the boat with. So they land on the shore, and I want to show you a map, because I know you all came to church today to say, I hope we see a map. <laughs> but it helps. So you can kind of see, if you can make this out from your seat, uh, the Sea of Galilee. On the western side would, and in the northwest would be the majority of, of Jewish uh, settled cities. This is where most of Luke so far has taken place. As Jesus wanders around, uh, led by the Spirit, into these cities, performing miracles, revealing who he is, gathering disciples. So they take this boat ride across the sea to the eastern side, the the southeastern side, all three Gospels that mention this story have a little bit different um, point of view of where exactly the disciples and Jesus land. But the most important thing to know is that they landed in the Decapolis. This Decapolis region, these 10 Greco-Roman cities that had been conquered by the Romans. There were some Jews that most likely lived among them, but for the most part, this was Roman territory. This was where Rome was uh, building their next greatest cities. And we read in history and also in the scriptures, later a lot of what Paul recounts, that these cities had a lot of sin going on. They had a lot of gnarly, R-rated stuff that was happening in these places. This Decapolis, the things that were happening here, would make Vegas and Amsterdam and New Orleans blush. <laughs> there was things that were happening here, child sacrifice, 
sexual sin beyond what even we can imagine in 2023. It was happening in this area and in this region. Yet at the same time, they were prosperous. They, were, they were, had tons of prosperity. They were building incredible buildings. In fact, some of these towns had indoor plumbing. <laughs> imagine that. It's always one of those weird things, right? When places that are so given over into sin, yet also have this prosperity about them. This was the land that Jesus told the disciples that they were heading into. But again, they hit this land, and I'm sure there's relief. Okay, at least we're getting off the boat. This land, though, had not just the Greco-Roman occupation there and, and all the things that were happening around them, but this land had a history of sinful practices. Way back in Deuteronomy, when, when God promises the land to the Israelites, he mentions seven people groups that are occupying the promised land. Some of these groups were even in this area uh, on the eastern side of Galilee. And he mentions them by names, all the Ittites. And then he says something interesting in Deuteronomy 7 too. God instructs Israel to completely eliminate these seven people groups. Now, from our 2023 perspective, it, it feels kind of brutal that God would instruct in this way, leave nothing left, show no mercy, because our God, by nature, is a God of mercy. And yet, what was happening among these people groups and what was happening in the Greco-Romans later on were similar things. It was really demonic. There was sexual sin in these seven groups. There was, again, child sacrifice. There was idols all across the land, people bowing down to idols left and right. And so God said, eliminate this, because if you don't, you, my people, will be compromised. Your men will marry these people group's women, and, and your women will marry their men, and you'll give yourself, rather than pulling them up, you'll give yourself to their idols. And I want to show mercy to you by saying, don't even mess with that. Eliminate them. And we know from reading the Old Testament that the Israelites began to inhabit the land and slowly began driving out some of these people groups, but ultimately they didn't completely do it. And so this land had this sinful past, this demonic occupation that was in it, that now as Jesus and the disciples landed has thousands of years of history. Often we think land is neutral. But I, I really believe, even you look in the scriptures, that land has a spiritual component to it. This land right here had been given over to the enemy. And the disciples, I think, were aware of that. This land was also often referred to not just the Decapolis, but as the seven referring to the seven people groups that had once occupied it. So back into Luke, verse 27. So Jesus lands. The disciples get out of the boat. There's a sense of relief, but that relief lasts about 13 seconds. Immediately as Jesus gets out of the boat, look at what happens here 
in this verse 27. As Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. Again, this man possessed by demons, in a sense, representing the land. These seven tribes that had occupied it and had all kinds of demonic experiences. The Greco-Romans who were experiencing all kinds of demonic worship. And now this man representing that area immediately confronts Jesus. Said this man for a long time had been living homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. This man's in bad shape. He's homeless. He doesn't have any clothes on. He's living banished in the tombs. I mean, who would live in a cemetery, right? Someone who had been driven out of every other place. Someone who wasn't welcomed in any home or town. Luke 8, 29 describes more about this man, and it says, the spirit had often taken control of the man. Even when he was placed under guard and put into chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness completely under the demon's power. So this man, demonically oppressed, has supernatural strength and power, breaking chains. Mark 5, also recounting this story, adds a couple more details to the man's life. It says, day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. This is a scary dude. This is a guy you wouldn't necessarily want to walk by on the streets. Day and night, he's howling and cutting himself. In the New Testament, it's very clear that the invisible world exists, that wicked spirits do exist. And the scriptures take these occurrences very seriously. This is the second, uh, really the third occurrence of Jesus interacting uh, with the demonic world here. In Luke 4, he casts out a demon out of a guy. But also, remember before that, he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself. And so Jesus, in his earthly ministry, encountered the demonic realm. Here we see this third instance of this on uh, the sea of the, the Gentile region. And just a question that comes up, maybe it's an obvious answer to this question, but does the demonic world still exist today? Are there demon-possessed people still walking around today? And the answer is yes. Yes, there's still people in our world walking around that have demons in them. The demonic world still exists today. Now, a reminder, though, that the scriptures also say that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So often, demonic activity in our world is not always the scary pitchfork and Satan look, right? Often, it's, it's, it's wrapped in, in warmth and, and goodness, and, and it's attractive, so that's one tactic of Satan is to, to look like an angel of light. So we need to be on even guard for that. 
But there is occurrences both in the scriptures we're reading here and today of the demonic realm that then pulls out all the ugliness and shows what it really is. And here's Jesus interacting with the ugliness of this world here. So the question, does the demonic world exist today? Yes, it does, but an encouragement to each of us. First John 4, I mean, First John says this, he who is in you is greater than the world. Some of you, you had your coffee at 6.30 and it's worn off. Some of you are thinking about what's happening tomorrow. I, I, you missed it. He who is in you is greater than the world. Do you believe this? Yes. For the believer in Jesus Christ, we should be sobered by the demonic spiritual world, but we shouldn't be overwhelmed in fear about it because Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit is in us, and that is greater than the world, and we're reminded in the story of that once again. Also, it's a great reminder in this story that no one is beyond the transformation of Jesus Christ. No one. Think of the person in your life right now who seems so far gone from ever knowing who Christ is. For the people in this story, that would be this man. And yet we see him tr transformed here. Luke 28, 29, it goes on in the story. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. And then I debated if I should um, say this next sentence like he said it, but maybe for my own voice and for, for, for sanity, I won't say it. But he screamed. He said, why are you interfering with, interfering with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. Do you see what's happening here? So the disciples in the boat, just hours before, the storm was about to overwhelm them. Jesus calms the storm. He has authority over nature, wind and waves. They say, who is this man? And a few hours later, guess who answers the question that they asked? The demonic, impressed man. Look what he says. They say, who is this man? And then this is what is said. Jesus, son of the most high God. Now again, in this region, there's all kinds of worship of all kinds of gods. There was a God for everything. And this demonically oppressed man says, you, Jesus, you're the highest God. You're the most supreme God. You're the God that's over all these other little gods. There's people who don't believe this, but even the demons believe that Jesus is truly the most high, that Jesus is supreme, and it's coming out through this interaction with this man. It's even more profound when you think about the fact that in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 14, it's described about Satan that his desire is to be the most high God. So describing Satan, he says, my desire, my mission is to be recognized as the most high God. And here is the captain of the demons. His demons are saying right here to Jesus, you are the most high God. 
So as much as Satan wants the attention and the worship and the acknowledgement of who he is, even his minions don't agree with him as they say, Jesus, you're the one. That's just awesome. Wow. Jesus being revealed once again here in this passage. The most high God. I was practicing this sermon in my office uh, on Thursday, and I read this sentence, Jesus, the most high God, and I just literally had to get out of my chair and get on my knees (laughs) and just say, like, Jesus, you are supreme. You are the chief shepherd. You are the Emmanuel. You are Alpha and Omega. You are the righteous one. You are leader, Lord of my life and everyone's life eventually. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that you are Lord. He's the Lamb of God that's been slain for sin. He's the new Adam. He's the lion and the lamb. He's the resurrected one who one day will come back and make all things new. This is our Jesus. Wow, wow, wow. The demons know it. Do you know it? The demons know it. Does your neighbor know it? The demons know it. Do our Afghan refugee friends who have moved into our neighborhood know it? Jesus, the most high God. Luke 8.30 then goes on in the story to say it like this. Jesus answered, what is your name? And the man responds, legion. For he was filled not just with one, but many demons. Again, Greco-Roman world, legion would represent about 5,000 to 6,000 soldiers. So this man is saying, my name is Legion. Potentially he has 5,000 to 6,000 demons inside of him. Either he was making that up to scare Jesus and to scare the disciples, or it's true. That's a serious battle that's raging against Jesus in this moment. But look at the next verse. These potential 5,000 demons are at the mercy of the Son of the Most High God. They're begging Jesus, don't send us into the abyss. Don't send us into the bottomless pit. They're begging the one who they know has the authority. They're acknowledging, you could do this if you wanted to, but, but please, please don't. And then the next verse, the story really picks up. The demons come out of the man, and they entered into what? Pigs. And the entire herd plunged down into the steep hillside and into the lake, and the pigs drowned. The scriptures tell us in Mark 5 that there was 2,000 pigs that ran into the ocean that day. So potentially 5,000 demons went into 2,000 pigs and then raced into the water and drowned. 
A question is, what happened to the demons? Did the demons die in the water? Did the demons then come out of the pigs and, and roam around the land um, continually? The scriptures just don't, don't tell us. But they also say in the Gospel of Mark, as the story is recounted, that the time had not yet come for the demons. Meaning that eventually, whether it was in this moment or a moment to come, the demons would be destroyed. So Jesus sends these pigs into the water, they die. And I imagine like a PETA protester being like, that's so wrong. What did the pigs do? 2,000 dead in one day, that's terrible. But you have to understand a little bit about this Greco-Roman culture on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They literally worshiped pigs. I know. (laughs) You can probably think of a lot better animals to worship than a pig. I mean, Labradoodle, of course. That would be the number one (laughs) choice. But in this culture, pigs were used for several things. It was the blood of pigs in the Greco-Roman culture, not lambs, but pigs. The blood of pigs was sacrificed to all of their gods. And they would sacrifice the blood of pigs during agricultural season to help with their crops. They would sacrifice the blood of pigs before a marriage or before even a a sexual, um, I'd say, exploitation. They would sacrifice the blood of pigs to hope for prosperity in their businesses, in their marketplaces. In fact, it's described that Roman soldiers would have a little statue of a pig around their neck as they went into battle. I'm sure that was really intimidating for the other armies that they would face. (laughs) But they had this high view of pigs. It's almost like maybe in India with uh, a cow in a Hindu context. So they loved pigs. These 2,000 pigs that ran to the water, they probably were being bred and groomed not for their bacon, although it would be so delicious, 2,000. (laughs) No, they were probably being raised by the herdsmen for temple sacrifice, for what I just mentioned. And so you got to understand how powerful this is. Jesus cast these 5,000 demons out of this one poor man, sends them in to the animal that represents the power of the gods of that region. And he does something to them that the Israelites couldn't do 1,000 years earlier. He sends the pigs to their death. Jesus, the son of the most high, has the authority to rule over the false gods of this region. And he just proved it by killing the demon piggies. (laughs) It's incredible. Verse 34, we read that the herdsmen then run back and tell all the people, probably for their own accountability. uh, They would be in big trouble if they lost 2,000 pigs in one day. So they rush back to basically complain about Jesus. And then look at verse 35. After the people rushed out to the sea to confront Jesus, they found Jesus, but look who they found next to him. They found the demon-possessed man calmly sitting, no longer roaming, sitting at Jesus' feet, 
fully clothed, no longer naked, and in his right mind, no longer screaming. This is what Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, can do for you and for me and for anyone that comes to him. Can literally transform you, body, mind, soul, spirit. Makes a new creation right here. And you'd think that the townspeople, as they run out, when they see this man completely transformed, this man that no one wanted anything to do with, the man that day and night screamed and, and cut himself, now sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus, you think that these people would then fall on their face and worship Jesus too. Or say, Change me like you just changed him. But no, instead, they begged Jesus, much like the demons did, and they begged Jesus to leave them. It's really a sad part of this story. The people had the opportunity to repent and turn to the Son of the God who's most high. And instead, they reject Jesus and tell him to leave. Why? Maybe... They liked their lives how they were. Maybe they were threatened by the fact that Jesus had this power and they were going to lose some of their power. Whatever the reason was, they reject Jesus. They beg him to leave. But then the healed man, he asks Jesus for something too. He begs Jesus for something, but different than the demons and the townspeople, uh, this now healed man begs and pleads with Jesus, Jesus, let me come home with you. Let me go be with you. Let me follow you. Let me get on the boat with you. I know many of us, when you come to Christ, there's this feeling of like, wow, what a relief. But also, what am I still doing here? I'm ready to go home to be with Jesus. I'm ready to go experience life with God uninterrupted forever. I want eternity now. What are we doing just wasting our time in this world? It's almost 2024, another year, just kind of biding time until Jesus comes back. I want to go with you, Jesus. I want to go home with you. This is what this man, he wanted us to follow Jesus, but then look what Jesus says. The man's pleading with him, but Jesus says no. Often God We'll say no to our begging and pleading, our prayers, but it's because he has a bigger purpose, a more righteous purpose. And in this purpose, he says, I want you to go tell people what I've done. Look at verse 39. Go back and tell your family, tell them everything God has done for you. So the reason the man can't go with Jesus is because Jesus says, I am now commissioning you. I'm going to make you the first missionary of the Decapolis. You are to go into this region. You're to tell your family and then tell everyone you can about what's happened to you. You once were possessed. You once were out of your mind. And now the son of the most God, the son of the God most high has changed you. And go tell them about it. That's why we're still here, people. You wonder, why don't I just go to heaven right now? Well, it's because Jesus has a mission for you. Jesus has a purpose for you, whether you're 86 or you're 6. Jesus has you on mission. He has me on mission. He has us 
on mission. And so the man does it. The man goes and he tells everyone he can about what Jesus has done for him. It's just awesome. It's incredible. Okay, how do we apply this to us today? Let's make this real for us in this moment. One is do you recognize Jesus' authority in your life? He is the one that has the power to calm the wind and the waves and to have authority over 5,000 demons. Do you recognize the authority of Jesus in your life? Two, have you understood your new identity in Jesus? The man said, my name is Legion. I guarantee you when he went back to his family, his name was no longer Legion. (laughs) He had a new name, a new identity. Do you realize that we have new identities in Christ, saved from sin when we place our faith in him? And then think for a moment, what have you been healed from, rescued from, delivered from, forgiven from? Maybe it's not 5,000 demons, but each of us has been forgiven in incredible and radical ways if you're a follower of Christ. Just remember that, proclaim that. And then who can you tell? Who can you be on mission for? Even this Thanksgiving and Christmas season, when you're at company, birthday, company parties, birthday parties, Thanksgiving celebrations, Christmas, New Year's, who can you proclaim like this man that was healed about all that Christ, the Son of God, most high, has done for you? This is, our, this is our marching orders here today. Let's let the story and the interactions here of Luke 8 change us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that once again we gather here today and we're reminded of who you are, Jesus Christ. Forgive us for minimizing your authority and your power. God, in this moment, we reset. We acknowledge just who you are. Lord, thank you for how you've changed our lives. You've literally reprogrammed us, transformed us, made us new. God, would you give us someone to tell that story to? even this week. We pray this in Christ. Amen.